Hello, I'm Rich Terring. I never listen to Nerdology <laughs> because I am way too cool. But carry on listening, nerds. This is Mark and welcome to episode 51 of Nerdology. As I record this, I am tucked away in Nerdology Towers doing a bit of editing on some forthcoming episodes of our sister podcast, All of Time and Space. So while I'm getting on with that, Ian, who's my co-host from All of Time and Space, got together with Matt Barber, who's a regular contributor to our show, and they had a chat about the Virgin New Adventures books to coincide with the 30th anniversary of the first one being published. So uh, we hope to have a few more episodes coming your way in the not-too-distant future. But in the meantime, sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Nerdology. It's special because the host of the show... My erstwhile colleague Mark Cockrum isn't here. He's probably gone out gallivanting now that the restrictions are easing up. So I'm here in the company of the podcasting legend, Dr. Matt Barber. Has Mark gone? If Mark's gone gallivanting, then I should really be out because <laughs> it's the same city. All the Exeter-based podcasters gallivant together. Do they? Is it like some sort of coven? Do you meet on a, a hilltop? Yeah, we have a big bowl in the middle. <laughs> In the middle of the, in the middle of the field, and we throw our yeti mics into the into the bowl, and then pick them out, and then you know, one thing leads to another, and we end up recording on each other's podcasts. I I did wonder what the system was, um. But uh, but thank you for for coming along. Um, pleasure. The the reason I asked you is you're literally the only person I can think of, um, who's it's always read... the way. So. <laughs> That that came out wrong, and I haven't even finished the sentence. Yeah, Nevertheless, I'm going to blunder on with it, and then come back and try okay. and and try and improve it retrospectively. But you're one of the only podcasters I can think of who's actually read some of the new adventures. And this month, the the new adventures are 30 years old, or at least the first one is. So what I thought was that I really wanted to listen to a podcast about the new adventures because no one that I've listened to has really sort of done a a single episode on them um so i figured you were the guy excellent i mean the fact that they're 30 years old makes this a really melancholic podcast we'll be coming to that (laughs) it's 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 my birthday in in eight days time and i yeah mid 40s isn't where i thought i'd be when i was reading these mathematically where did you think you'd be well, I mean, logically, I thought I'd end up in my mid-thirties, but psychologically, right. you know, yeah, it's something that would different. never happen. No. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm in my mid-forties, and I still function very much along the lines of a seven-year-old boy, mm. but with um, a duff, a duff knee. I understand. Yeah, oh, with a hopeless knee, it's complete okay. rubbish. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Oh but, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm. Oddly, I'm I function as a seven year old boy apart from reading the new adventures, which I find much easier now than I did <laughs> did back when I was oh probably two probably nineteen eighteen nineteen when they started. Um, 
I'm trying to think. No, so I, I, it was 91, yeah. It was my, I was 15. I was and, 14, um, 14. You, once again, your competitive edge comes <laughs> shining out. Um, and let's let's sort of start off, I suppose, with with you know that time and what it was like. So I think the first indication we had about the new adventures was the kind of afterward in the back of the novelization of Survival, where Peter Darvel Evans, I think, at Virgin said. Hello, fans. We know this is the last novel. Um, the show appears to have vanished, um, but don't despair. We're going to carry on the stories of the Doctor and Ace from from here, from the end of Survival. Uh, did you did Do you remember that? Nope. Um, but but in retrospect, it seemed almost inevitable that that they were going to carry on. I mean, writing writing. Uh, fiction based on the television series just seemed such an obvious thing for Doctor Who to do because Star Trek and Star Wars had been doing it quite successfully and filling in these gaps and sort of expanding the universe. So I certainly wasn't surprised to see the new adventures. Um, I had, I actually hadn't read it in in the end of, of Survival and it seems like an odd, in retrospect, an odd place to promote the new adventures <laughs> because... Because they're so unlike the target books from from the get go. I mean, they are they aren't a continuation of the target books or the television series. They are something far far more ambitious. I think far deeper and broader for the for the small screen. Yeah. Um, but there is that kind of prevailing sense that the novelization of Curse of Fenric and Remembrance of the Daleks because they were both slightly more sophisticated and had a fractionally bigger page count could could be seen as a kind of foray into the world of telling a slightly more joined up adult story I don't think there's anything in that I think that's just purely what those two authors delivered uh, for those two novelizations I mean those two novelizations are marginally more sophisticated and marginally more narratively interesting than Uncle Terence's books. And Uncle Terence's... So I'm not denigrating Terence Dix's books because they are amazing for eight-year-olds and ten-year-olds, and I grew up on them. Even even reading Destiny of the Daleks at the age of eight or nine, I could tell that he pretty much pissed it out in about an <laughs> afternoon. It was about seven script. pages long, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. So so there were there were moments and I think I think the next generation of writers, or actually the not even the next generation, the generation after that of writers, Aronovich and Mark Platt, they did try to do something more interesting, if only to keep their their interest in the writing process. And Presumably because they weren't so busy as Terence Dix that it wasn't like a it was a labour of love I think for them rather than rather than a job which which Terence Dix uh, was a, a contract which Terence Dix was serving um, and that I think that comes out in those two, two novels I don't think they're they're an, they're an odd interim this this story is full of sort of odd kind of interim phases which are neither like the previous one nor like the next one, but seem to organically move from one to the other. So Target's 
to those two novels, to the new adventures, to the new series, and Big Finish, this kind of bifurcation between Big Finish and the new series. And they, they all sort of feed on the last ones, but they all do something slightly different and, and hybridise each other, I think. I think you're right. I think there is a sort of... It's like melting chocolate in a pan and it all it's always a slightly different thing as the mm. as the melting process goes on so uh the summer of 91 then did you start reading the books as soon as they came out or were you did you sort of stumble across the first three in a shop and and pick up from there i'm pretty sure i'm i'm pretty sure i i started with times crucible with cat's cradle and then i think i retrospectively bought um, Revelation and Exodus and sort of worked my way back slightly. I'm um, quite why I didn't go, I think and you mentioned this on your blog which I very quickly read today uh, because I thought oh, you know, that's very kind of you. I, I, owed, I owed it to you. Um, but you mentioned the fact that the cover of Time We're in Genesis wasn't exactly the sort of thing to, <laughs> to snare people. Into it didn't feel like a Doctor Who no. cover. It wasn't sort of bells and whistles. So I, I think I think I can remember seeing the cover and just thinking, maybe I'll wait <laughs> wait a bit until <laughs> something slightly more interesting looking <laughs> comes along. Um, yes, yes. So I think I skipped that one for for, for a while. Um, I think Terence Dix attracted me because obviously Terence Dix was a known quantity. Um, so yeah. time we're in Exodus was a comfort to read that, um, and and yeah, but I think it was Times Crucible where I started. That's um, <laughs> that's uh, that's amazing in the context of you then persisting with it. But uh, mm. we'll come to those in a second. Let's <laughs> let's look at the the Time Worm books first of all. Um, yeah. and as you as you mentioned, I I alluded to this in my blog post recently about. Timeworm Genesis, but uh, John Peel is an interesting choice to kick off the new range. Um, mm. And what he produced was, I would say, very much fan service. And in chapter two of Timeworm Genesis, he kind of accidentally stumbles on the magic formula for the new adventures, which is an old doctor reappears for the sake of continuity and Ace takes her clothes off. Yeah. Would you disagree with that? Well, I, I was surprised to read that because from memory. So when I was thinking back over over Genesis without having read it for about 20, 21 years, I remember it as being a really unusual John Peel book because John Peel, and he's on he's on social media. So I want to be nice, and I'm going to be nice, but I'm going to be honest. I loved I loved his target novelizations. I was. I've really enjoyed the Daleks Master Plan and Evil of Daleks and Power of Daleks. I thought they were great. His past Doctor adventures, I think, are awful because they are just these these kind of clumsily woven Dalek Dalek continuity stories, which I, I tried rereading one recently uh, because I thought I should like. It was War of the Daleks or something or. I was literally just thinking of that. Desperation of the Daleks yeah, or yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And I couldn't get past the first... It was even... And I've been a fan all my life and I couldn't get past the first chapter because it was annoying me so much. And Time <laughs> We're in Genesis, thinking back on it, 
I always thought of it as being a really unusual, because there's no Daleks in, for contractual reasons. Um, <laughs> it feels like it's such a weird place to start. And I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten the, the sort of tie-ins to previous Doctors and, um, and actually reading it on Wikipedia. It reminded me that the fourth Doctor makes an appearance. But that kind of, that kind of trip to Mesopotamia is so unlike, I mean, really, it's a Hartnell thing. It's going back to, to Hartnell. And at the time, I hadn't seen any very much Hartnell. I didn't know very much Hartnell. The the, the videos were still quite early on. Um, so it just felt completely alien from the TV series, completely alien. And that, that I think, that I think was was a slight block in me really getting into the new adventures at the time because it was so different but also it was one of the reasons why I kept on reading them because I thought at some point somebody's going to write something that connects with me and that feels like the old series but feels somehow new and I just kept on persisting um, so I can't say I enjoyed Genesis I think I, I sort of read it hoping to recognize things and and failing yeah i think it was um again at the time as a as a 15 year old boy i thought it was absolutely fine coming on the the heels of what it had you know come along after but um yeah looking at it now it it does feel like a really curious kind of way of launching a new series of books which it was you know, in theory, designed to be they as I mean, because I work in publishing, I know now the psychology of publishers and what they were thinking was very much we can sell three million copies of each of these because that's how big the TV audience is. Um, and yet, what John Peel wrote was so um, overly continuity heavy. He keeps wanging on about Katerina and. Um, Sarah Kingdom and the third Doctor appears at the end for no reason and then there is as you say that kind of weird Hartnellian I suppose that maybe um, the the idea of setting it in Mesopotamia might have been let's go back to the genesis of human civilization as a kind of weird parallel for this being the genesis of a new that era of Doctor Who, it feels like a stretch. But... Genesis with an I or a Y, just, just. To... <laughs> I, mean, um, I, I can't, I can't really criticise that affectation. Having, uh, I, I don't know if you know, I wrote a book about the demons. You which did. I, I was going to mention that at the end. Exactly <laughs> the same affectation, and I was about to take the piss out of Genesis with a Y, <laughs> not forgetting that actually the demons was the first and greatest example of them just putting. Um, an ash or whatever it is into a into a word just to make it old looking. So now um, I'm wondering if when they released the film Terminator Genesis, they had to spell it in an even more weird way because John Peel had, had got there first. Uh, possibly uh, the, with that movie, I got the impression that it was just bounced around executive producers, the million executive producers, until it just died. And they just, yes, and then they and filmed it. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, I think you're right. I think. So the the past, so from memory, the past, the first past Doctor adventure. I know the first eighth Doctor adventure was Terence Dix. The first past Doctor adventure that was Terence Dix as well, wasn't it? That was Blood Harvest because he did the vampire. Uh, yes, yes, that's right. The vampire crossover. Yeah. And 
and so John Peel is John John Peel an unusual choice to start a series and then have Terence Dix as the second, or was John Peel riding high on Daleks' master plan, Evil of the Daleks? Well, I power? I I do suspect that because he was still very much in the mindset of having just written Daleks' master plan, yeah. that's one of the reasons he kept name checking everyone from it. Yeah. Um, but you know, if if well, let, let's not start. What if it? I'd been in charge of it because it would be very different. But I wouldn't necessarily have started a new range with someone like John Peel. He's right. a very safe yeah. pair of hands. Um, yeah. yeah. But he's not. He he doesn't seem like an innovator. And to be fair, neither does Terence Dix, who followed up Genesis with Exodus. No, I mean my my instinct is you don't want an innovator, but. You want you want somebody recognisable. You want somebody to bridge that gap, but but it seemed to work. I mean, I, I guess because they were releasing them. Oh no, they weren't. They were releasing them every three months. It looks like so. So at this stage, there's not that much of a gap between Genesis and Exodus, and I guess I guess people will buy the first book because they'll be interested in it, and they'll buy the second book. Because because maybe I I'm not going to say Terence Dix is a, like a a sellable author, but for <laughs> Doctor Who fans, I think they would buy Exodus because it's got the Terence Dix name on it. Absolutely. Although again, it was another really heavy continuity fest, which kind of is predicated on the reader understanding and having recently watched the War Games, which probably no, I think it was commercially available on the on the two VHS pack when exodus came out but it's not exactly in the zeitgeist so no. i think the readers are kind of hit over the head by two real slogs in terms of continuity although exodus which i haven't reread recently so all i can remember is the doctor saying that he likes them big and bouncy and <laughs> um and the fact that it, it at least rattled along really quite quite quickly it didn't overstay its welcome should we say I mean, that's my my memory of it is rattling along so yeah. terence terence dix is yes he becomes obsessed with the war games for for some for some reason that's his that's his like preoccupation he becomes a fan of the war games just solely and wants to expand that throughout the whole of his his writing time but i think because he's a fan of john buckham and somerset Maugham and all of these kind of adventure novelists, Raymond Chandler, he knows how to structure a novel. The scaffolding of his writing is so solid and so secure that you feel confident when you're reading it. So with Paul Cornell, you appreciate the... He's a lyrical writer, and you appreciate the inventiveness, but because he's a fresh writer, this his first novel, you never quite trust the scaffolding of his story, the structuring of his story, because, you, you know, if it was my first novel, it would be all over. Well, I couldn't write it, but if it was, then it would be all over the place. With Terence Dix, you know that that structure is going to work. You know it's going to have beginning, middle and an end. It's going to have pace. It's going to have jeopardy. So Exodus did feel, at the time, like I was reading something familiar, like I was reading a Doctor Who story. Um, it didn't stretch the boundaries too far. It didn't do anything unexpected, um, but it did rattle along. And it was a new story. It was the first time uh, a new story about the war chief and the warlords 
had had existed outside of sweaty fanzines. So so actually that's it's quite a revelation before Big Finish. Um, before Big Finish basically makes spin-offs, <laughs> spin-offs of the Crotons and and Tom the Dominator or whatever. Yeah, um, This was really, this was the first sort of time they came back and the first time anything like that came back. I'm wondering if perhaps when Terence, or shortly before Terence wrote it, maybe he, he perhaps started going to conventions and, and for the first time was hearing people saying, oh, we love the war games. And he'd always dismissed it as being a bit of a, a sort of panic-written assembly line. Oh, my God, we've got to fill 10 weeks of, of TV. Mm. Um, so maybe maybe he was so buoyed up by the realisation that people loved this story from 1969 that he chose to make it a, a or, or, you know, follow it up in that book. The third one in the Time Worm series was... Um, Revelation, no. Apocalypse. Apocalypse, thank you. About which I can remember the second Doctor appears in it and pretty much nothing else. <laughs> um, I, can't, I, can remember, I can remember not expecting to like it and then actually finding it very readable, um, which surprised me, but that's about, that's about all I can remember. I think it's, it's, it, it falls into the... So with the new adventures, I don't think they did Alien Worlds very well. I don't like reading long novels with completely with like the Web Planet style mm. Alien Worlds, where it's completely kind of so. Um, I'm looking at the synopsis. Uh, the Pangistry also provide an endless supply of nourishing food known as Zavat. Mirror reveals that, despite all they've learned from the Pangistry, the Crithions. <laughs> Are unable to leave their planet and explore the stars. As soon as you start having uh, that, it yeah. starts. It just, I just lose it a bit. And I think, <laughs> I think the new adventures constantly went back to this kind of, this kind of alienating alien. Even when they're setting a story on Earth or in a village, or in with unit, there was always a either a subplot that went into cyberspace. Or yeah. went into this kind of bizarre fantasy space, both of which sort of alienated me, sort of like put me off. And I think Apocalypse pretty much, pretty much was the epitome of that. Well, I think yeah. By the time I'd read that, I'd had three books, which um, you know, to to varying degrees, were all very readable. And you know, yes, you had more Seventh Doctor and Ace Adventures, but. I don't know. It, all three of them were kind of barriers to people reading these books for very much longer because they were all so insular and kind of no one was doing anything new. And then we got to Revelation. <laughs> Which is a weird one. I mean, Revelation yes. is is a weird one. It's still, it is insular. It's very beautifully written as far as I remember. It's the first, the first, I would say the first piece of Doctor Who fiction that is written by somebody who clearly loves graphic novels, clearly loves sort of Alan Moore. I think some of the late TV stories suggest that, but I think this is where Paul Cornell really demonstrates that he's destined to be a great, you know, a great writer of, of graphic fiction. 
um, because it's full of these kind of evocative set pieces, um, not least of which appears on the front cover. So a church on Earth with the Doctor dancing with death and an astronaut. I mean, this is sort of Stephen Moffat levels of of weirdness. Well, there's um, people like to make the connection between Paul Cornell's work and then what Stephen Moffat has gone on to do while he was showrunner. Um, and I think I think there's a lot in that, but I, I obviously I think Stephen Moffat is a much bigger. Um, I don't want to use the word talent because that sounds like I'm being rude about Paul Cornell, but he's he's but he is. Um, however, <laughs> I think at the time reading Revelation because it you know I as from memory again the Doctor ends up trapped in his own subconscious and he has all these long meandering encounters with his previous lives and obviously yes there's a church on the moon that talks there's the astronaut it felt very surreal and as a 15 year old who in 1991 had just watched Twin Peaks when it was first broadcast I think that's the that's when it kind of chimed with me or that's what it snagged on and it said it is still Doctor Who but this is a much more relevant and new and innovative and sophisticated thing for for you as a reader, young Ian. Um, so I think it was fourth time lucky for the new adventures. And, and that was the point where I was kind of, you know, finally on board with the, with the books. I think, I think I can, it's the first time that I, I saw something exciting in the books and really, as you say, innovative, I think I was still alienated by it because whilst I was a big fan of Twin Peaks, I love Twin Peaks as an episodic work of television. Twin Peaks written down in a book, I would have found completely unreadable, interminable. Absolutely. I, you can't do it. I think, I think, at, I think at, that, at that age that I read Revelation, I wasn't ready to fully appreciate or fully understand or get absorbed. I wasn't immersed in the book. And I suspect if I went back now and read it, I think I'd probably have the same, a similar problem that I just want a bit more kind of action to it or a bit more sort of conventional or a bit more wit as well. So this is, I think, I think Russell T Davis and Stephen Moffat both owe, owe a debt to the new adventures and to Paul Cornell. I think Paul Cornell is a big part of shaping shaping the new series. But what Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat add is humour and lightness. So they have this sophistication, but they also know when not to not to spend an episode in sp- cyberspace um, or in somebody's mind. Or if they do, um, as with the, the Heaven Sense, the Paul uh, the Peter Capaldi one. Um, they do it again with wit, um, and it's only it's only forty minutes, so you're not spending you know a week in in somebody's mind. And I'm thinking back to uh, was it the the name of the Doctor? So the yeah. episode where the Doctor ends up trapped in his subconscious with all of his previous incarnations. Oh yeah, no, Clara jumps into the oh, yeah, subconscious right. and that's rescues. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's those, those sorts of episodes that are so divisive now. So you look at, there's a poll, an endless poll that happens on Twitter for the, the greatest Doctor Who story ever made. 
which I kind of I kind of groan when I see, and then I immediately vote <laughs> <laughs> vote for vote for the ones I think of. And Name of the Doctor is one of those ones that that kind of really kind of gets gets people's goat up. I think. Mm, yeah. Um, but you're right. It is it is one of the ones that is closest in tone to a new adventure. I think. Yeah. And things like a good man goes to war. So so things where where it doesn't quite sort of tell a conventional story it sort of mixes it up a bit um but it's i think it's more palatable as a 40 minute tv series and ironically the one that is based on a new adventure which is human nature is the most conventional one of the more conventional conventionally structured television stories um but we'll we'll get to that we will um I was, I was just about to chip in, and this this might make you angry, and I don't want to incite you to rage, but I liked Orphan 55, and the reason I liked it was that it reminded me of a new adventure, not because it did anything in that kind of broad, sophisticated way, but it, it just tried to cram an awful lot into its 45-minute screen time. You know, there was a little flirty romance for Ryan outside of the main plot there were locations that were created that were i think slightly more fleshed out and i'm not going to launch into a long spirited defense of all i mean i'm 55. not I'm, I'm not angry i'm <laughs> you're I disappointed co- condescendingly piteous okay, <laughs> so, okay. I d- disappointed i mean if you like a story in which the working class turn out to be uh demon rage monsters <laughs> And, I, I live and, in Essex, so I, I know. Oh, okay, that's fact. fair enough. That's fair enough. I walk I mean, past Weatherspoons twice a week. My God. I mean, it's it's like a Mike Lee film for you, then. <laughs> then Orphan Fifty Five. Um, but yeah, I'd I'd agree that, uh, yeah, to to varying degrees, I think Chipnell as well draws on, and in fact, possibly Chipnell Chipnell has returned. We always, I always think, or on on the podcast I'm on, Strangers in Space, available, and I've no idea where. Um, we often think of Chibnall stories as being a return to Russell T. Davis, and and that kind of style. But actually, there there's a strong sort of new adventure feel to them, um, and I think it's understandable because the new adventures are this great sort of cauldron of experimentation and freedom and different ways of not just telling a Doctor Who story but exploring the character of the Doctor which was never done really in the original series it was only scratched on in the original series the new adventures kind of finds different ways of dissecting the Doctor and dissecting Ace and using Ace to dissect the Doctor um, you can do so, it if you're, if you're selling 5,000 copies of a book you can play as fast and loose and you can go as off-piste as you want and yeah. no, you're not going to damage the franchise. If you're writing an episode of, of the TV show post-2005, you absolutely have to have aliens in it, and there are absolute things you don't mess with because yeah. everyone now is you know, enthralled to this thing of, oh, we mustn't damage the brand. So yeah. The New Adventures was Doctor Who's kind of punk moment where it could, you know, people could could reach in with both hands and pull the guts out of it and see what made it tick and and how it worked and what you could do differently and speaking of doing differently time's crucible (laughs) let's yeah so so somehow the the 
the books sell well enough for Virgin to come back in 1992 with the Cat's Cradle trilogy. Uh, over to you. So, well, talking about pulling Doctor Who inside out, Times Crucible pulls the TARDIS inside out. Good link. And and well, that's what it's that's what it sells itself on, <laughs> and that's why I read it because I loved Castrovalva. I loved uh, Logopolis growing up. I loved Frontios, where somehow the TARDIS blows up and you get like the TARDIS walls fused. And so I saw initially Times Crucible as being that sort of journey to the centre of the TARDIS. Yeah. Um, and I remember sort of happily reading it, thinking it was that, without really mm. understanding it. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think it's Mark Platt's. I, I think it's an example of, and I really like Mark. I really love Go. I think Ghostlight is a great story. I think Longbarrow is weirdly underrated, and I really like Longbarrow. I really like his big finish productions. I like uh, Luke Guru. Um, Times Crucible feels like he was a bit excited to be writing exactly anything he wants without with minimum script editing um, and it's almost like his brain has been fogged with at that stage what 30 years of Doctor Who 40 years of Doctor Who 30, 30 years of Doctor Who yeah. um, so all of these all of these images and texts and episodes all kind of brainstorm into him and he just writes right he writes it like it's his last novel like it's the only time he's going to get to write a doctor who novel and as such it just kind of collapses under its own weight i think and it was weighty because it did i think from memory it was about 6012 pages long and all that really <laughs> happens is ace pushes a bicycle around the inside of the TARDIS which has expanded a bit like in the end of uh, oh, what was it called now uh, the name of the Doctor um, but <laughs> I've hit on something there and I'm going to keep coming back to it and whacking that drum I'm, I'm, remi I'm reminded of the Hobbit movies where half the first movie which is about <laughs> an hour and a half long for just the Hobbits the Hobbit has a tea party with dwarves which in the book uh, like Tolkien Tolkien I've never known for like brevity, but at least he gets the tea party out of the way and the adventure started. Yes. Peter Jackson doesn't do that. He sticks with it for for songs and food and sorry, yeah. There's probably a recipe book of it. Uh, yeah. Peter Jackson's The Hobbit Cookery Book. Actually, we probably publish it. I shouldn't joke. Um so coming after uh the Times Crucible were were there were so it was Andrew Cartmel's Warhead and then Andrew Hunt's Witchmark, which kind of rounded out this trilogy. The Cat's Cradle thing was kind of not very much of a muchness when it came to being the, the MacGuffin for the trilogy. It was just there was a cat that appeared because the TARDIS was a bit knackered and it needed some magic fairy dust. Spoilers. Um, but did, did either of the subsequent two books do much for you? I mean, Warhead might have done, but I've never read it. Um, have you read Warhead? I have, yes. Oh, did um, it do it for you? <laughs> it really did at the time. Um, again, okay. it it was again in that kind of kind of cyberpunky graphic novel kind of space where it was this dark future with a 
you know, a sort of toxic environment and big heartless business and everyone was very cynical and downbeat. And I think the Doctor appears for about 20 pages in the whole thing. It's a, it's a really different way of telling the story. Um, okay. Ace gets naked. I remember that. Really? Um, would, yeah. would Ace get naked if you were running, if you were editing these books? Is that something Ace, you approve, approve of? No, that... I, I would have got rid of Ace... Um, probably even before the the book range started i would have said okay. right let's let's do something new um but i think an awful lot of the writers obviously fancied sophie aldred because if you look at the number of times ace gets naked which is let's say f- about 50 compared yeah. to the number of times benny summerfield gets naked which is let's say she doesn't um i think it's very clear to see that there's a lot of a lot of Aldred appreciation in the minds of some of the gentlemen who wrote these books. I mean, it's it's a little bit itchy because three of these gentlemen or two of these gentlemen have worked on the series. So and his, Andrew Andrew Cartmel had had a professional relationship with Sophie Aldred. Yes. And reading his biography or his autobiography, it's clear that he was aware he was aware that Sophie Aldred was, you know, an attractive lady. But but also a sixteen seventeen year old girl in the in the stories, which yes, is, um, that is true. There are suddenly layers of problematichood which we're we're popping onto these books. But anyway, Warhead was yeah. really good. Did you read yeah. Witchmark? I did read Witchmark, and actually, Witchmark was quite refreshing. These these three novels, good or bad, they are buried. I think they do they do tell the sort of different different aspects he says not having read warhead but if it's a tech a techno thriller i'm assuming you're you're describing yeah um so you do have this kind of insular story this sort of contemporary story and then witch mark was again this kind of lyrical from what i remember lyrical story about welsh mythology um and yeah it felt again the cover attracted me because because it felt it felt more grounded, I think. I, it had a I unicorn it, on it, Matt. It had a unicorn, but it, <laughs> I thought this might be the story where they didn't go to to uh, an alien planet. And I think they probably did go to an alien planet. Um, but, but yeah, it had that, sign of, it had that kind of uh, grounded quirk to it, which, which appealed to me. But as I don't remember a great deal about it, I think it's... I think a lot of these books are packed with imagery that should really appeal to me, but they don't quite tell the story to live up to the imagery. So a church, a village, a stone circle, ancient mythology, uh, the doctor trapped in snow, things like that, should uh, exactly what I dream of when I dream of the best Doctor Who story ever. But to make it into a book, they add they add cyberspace to it or they add an alien planet to it or they, you know, they make haste naked or something like that. And it's always a little bit sort of, they've never quite hit the mark for most of these. I feel like they were, they were all very much of the time. You know, a lot of the chapter headings were songs by the happy Mondays or early blur songs or whatever. Um, It was all about cyberpunk and cyberspace. And so, there was an awful lot of that in the books. Um, and as the range goes on and you get to kind of really self-indulgent jokey books like Return of the Living Dad where 
everything's a 90s in-joke. And by the end of reading that, you're basically sitting there humming Three Lions and drinking lager and reading Loaded, you know. Um, but so so the range continues. And again, I think it was still bi-monthly. In the next few months, we got um, Mark Gatiss's first professional engagement in the world of Doctor Who, which was Nightshade, which I remember absolutely loving. Um, yeah. Not sure how how well or, or not it's aged, but I'll find out soon enough because I'm probably going to reread them all because this is an excuse to do that. Um, then uh, Love and War, I think, came along next, and we had a new companion in Bernice Summerfield where... I could do a separate podcast on this, but I don't think anybody needs to hear that. But what what uh, what do you think of when you think of Benny Summerfield? I I think she was a refreshing addition. So I liked the fact that she was added. I think the pairing of the Doctor and Ace, even before they kind of darkened Ace up, not not in a in an appropriate way, sorry, not in a Leela way. I I meant in terms of character. Um, I, there's always a problem with with a TARDIS crew that don't get on or that are at each other's throats or don't want to travel together because you don't want to travel with them. You don't want to be with them. I think Bernice, yeah, had a bit of that as well, but she had a kind of... She was a literary companion. I think that's the difference. I think Paul Cornell was able to give her personality through... Because he used the convention of her extracts from her diary... I seem to remember. And that's a good way of sort of sneaking in a first-person narrative and sneaking in a bit of her, her personality into it. Um, so so I think she was a very well-constructed character from the get-go and one that worked really well with the Seventh Doctor because the Seventh Doctor in these stories is either absent, literally absent, or kind of uh, absent in terms of character. He's very very kind of occasionally you have a character that you hadn't really noticed before saying something that Sylvester McCoy might have said and then you realize that actually that's the seventh doctor (laughs) he is thinking about it and I've I've been rereading human nature and conundrum and he's still and that's sort of the middle of the the middle of the, the the series um he's still very kind of not bland but just sort of not present it's very difficult to uh, when i you when i read them at the time i'd sort of try and and have this kind of idea of sylvester mccoy in my head and how would he deliver some of these lines and it fundamentally more often than not just did not work yeah i think i think what it is is it's they're not doing sylvester mccoy they're doing the character of the doctor that they talked about and by they, I mean Aronovich um, and uh, Mark Platt and Andrew Cartmel. They talked about with Sylvester McCoy as being, where do we want this character to go? And so you see hints of it in Ghost Light and, and Battlefields and uh, Curse of Fenric. But here it's sort of taking that one step further. And I yeah. think that's, again, that's great on TV well, it sort of works on TV because you get sort of mysterious visual impact. You see the unusually uh, this this figure of Sylvester McCoy, 
who should be clownish, but actually he's in the darkness, he's in the shadows, and there's something interesting about that. You put a character into the darkness and shadows in a book, and it's just they're not talking, <laughs> or they're described as being in, and then a character in the shadows yeah. comes out yeah. and says something a bit like what Sylvester McCoy would have said at some point. But you can kind of understand it slightly better. I, I unless, think Unless it's first person, and that doesn't happen. You just can't tell it from the first person. Yeah. And I think it was one of Virgin's house house rules that you, you never set a scene or a book from the point of view of the Doctor. So yeah. you're trying to do something in a literary form that the character was not created for. Yeah. And you're trying to do it in a with both hands tied behind your back because you can't analyse the Doctor unless you're Paul Cornell. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, it didn't really work. Whereas with Benny Summerfield, because she was created uh, very well for the books uh, as a, a literary character. And so I can only think of maybe two or three books in the whole subsequent 60-odd book, well, 50 by that point, that uh, they, they didn't nail the character absolutely bang on. Everyone just did it so well. And and she's very Doctor-like. She is. She's... She's an old-fashioned doctor figure, I yeah. think. She's irreverent. She's chaotic. She's an archaeologist. I mean, she's River um, Song, isn't she? That's where. Yeah, she's River Song. <laughs> yeah. but there's a re- there's a reason why she gets she gets to continue the, the new adventures after the Doctor's left. There's a reason why it works without the Doctor. That's because Bernice Summerfield is the Doctor, and yeah. Ace is the companion, and the Doctor is sort of in the shadows somewhere pissing them both off <laughs> I mean the he, Doctor's effectively the Black Guardian in a lot of these stories he does stray very close to, I mean like so the the book we're talking about Love and War where, where Benny is introduced the Doctor and the whole book is like obviously a massive um, AIDS allegory which is kind of I guess um, an attempt to do something slightly more adult with the formula but uh, the Doctor knowingly sacrifices Ace's new boyfriend because he's bigger picture, greater good. Ah, this is what I have to do. Um, and so Jan dies. And so was that what was that an impression? No, I I I, I did a wee on my foot. Um, oh. um, and so and that's when Ace is written out for. The first time of what feels like many. I think she was only written out twice. But um, th- this was, I mean, one of the, the central weaknesses of the range, if I had to identify one, would be that Ace is perhaps the most inconsistently handled character throughout the book. Sometimes she's very much Sophie Aldred on television in 1988. Sometimes she's the five years later hardened space bitch character who you know, might might have come from an Aliens movie. Um, some of the time she's kind of somewhere in between. She's leaving, she's going, she hates the Doctor, she wants to kill the Doctor, she's perfectly happy with the Doctor. And from one book to the next, it can be really jarring uh, the way that different writers approach the character. Yeah, I, th- I think the writers have decided that conflict is the only way to tell a story. And I think they haven't trusted in the conflict of the situation around the TARDIS crew. 
they have to have conflict within the TARDIS crew as well, and that just gets wearing. And Ace is regularly at at the centre, or maybe Ace and the Doctor are on either side of this conflict. And that's that's so. I'm rereading Conundrum, and to be honest, I'm getting fed up with Ace. <laughs> I'm really annoyed with Ace more than I remember doing when I read it originally, um, just because she's sort of moping around and. There's a mystery to the story, and because nobody's talking to one another, the mis- that's what's perpetuating the mystery. It's not an investigation. <laughs> it's just, it's just the the uh, the result of lack of communication between these characters who I'm supposed to get on with. Um, so I agree, and I agree that I mean Ace is a weird Doctor Who character because she's had so many departures in so many different formats as well. So. She dies in the comics. Yeah. Uh, she leaves, as you say, two or three times in the new adventures. I'm sure Big Finish have probably got some sort of last Ace story somewhere. I'm sure there's a box set. Buried. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's probably set on alternate universes, so they've probably got four different endings as well. Um, <laughs> and I think that's... I think re- really it's it's possibly indicating... She had one more season of the television story left. If, well, we know, or, or half of that. I mean, or yeah, or even half. Yeah. So maybe maybe two stories left before her story was told. So it suggests that Ghostlight and Survival, it was getting close to telling the complete story of Ace, and it's it's done quite well in the TV series. It's incomplete, but it it you can see a progression and you can see an acceleration towards an end. And the new adventures then stretches that end out for four years, three years. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, and it's difficult. You're you're right that it does become slightly better when she's not there. Yes. <laughs> um, so conundrum, which you've just mentioned, is part of the kind of unofficial alternative universe cycle which began with blood heat in the sort of autumn of 93 um and conundrum i think is the penultimate book in that series the the series hangs on the idea that in each in each book something's wrong or something's been changed either in the universe or in the doctor's life specifically and there's this kind of ongoing oh what's going on who's behind it all did you read that series in full at the time? And do you remember having any hopes or feelings as to what was going to be the big reveal in that? Um, I can't remember having any... So the the, the arc storylines in The New Adventures always felt very lightly touched. This wasn't Buffy... The, this was before Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, so, so they kind of sort of dusted over. I mean, particularly when you get to the Psy... The the size oh, something size powers, powers yeah which which I didn't notice was a collective <laughs> term until it was retrospectively applied, but the alternative history one I think is the more successful of of all of them and actually looking at the stories in it I think if there is a golden age of Doctor Who then of Doctor Who New Adventures I think this is sort of moving into it, um, because I think I think Blood Heat is. I haven't read it recently, but I remember thinking it was a really, really good, absolutely, really, really good novel, a really good idea, a really good twist on. So it, it does, it does bring, 
it does have sort of continuity. It does go back into the past of Doctor Who, but it does something um, so so distinctive to that to that period, um, and so original that that is just really satisfying. And actually, I think it's been it's one of the things that has echoed down echoed down into the new series as well. So I th- I think it is it has been an influential book as well. But Blood Heat, I can remember really liking. Um, and The Left-Handed Hummingbird as well. I found difficult when I was 15, but I read it, reread it, and it's such a sort of an emotionally intelligent novel. And it is... It is an experimental story, and it does go places that you don't expect Doctor Who to go, but... It's so well written and it's so unusual and it's so distinctive um, that that stands apart, I think. And then the series concludes with no, well, not the series, that particular arc concludes with No Future, which is again Paul Cornell. It's a book that he's not perhaps the most fond of, of all of his oeuvre. Um, 70s punk, someone's meddling with time. Yeah, we know. Get on with it. And the big reveal, and I'm going to drop a spoiler for anyone who hasn't read it, but it's The Meddling Monk. Mm. Now, having recently watched all The Meddling Monk stories from the 60s, I I did observe that it was really weird that no one had ever brought him back. But at the time when he did come back, and that would have been 94, I think, in the books by that point, I was just really pissed off that it was some kind of old 60s throwback and not the Valiard who was behind everything because I was so firmly on team Valiard that really yeah really? yeah oh, I, you are you are much more of a fanboy than me <laughs> I was quite happy that I I think I was I was still glad that nothing from season 23 would ever come back even at the time I was just thinking well let's never go back here let's 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 go back to the sixties, if you must. Seventies, <laughs> ideal, ideally, but nineteen eighty-three or yeah, season twenty-three. Let's not go yeah. There. Well, I mean, so I, in my defence, when the Trial of a Time Lord was on TV, the Valiard seemed like a really good idea at the time, and a really good villain, and a really good idea for a villain. Um, and I was always a bit miffed that he'd never made his way back to TV. So. I thought it was kind of obvious that he'd be back in the books and of course subsequently he would be in a couple of books which had very much the same kind of approach where the Sixth Doctor is slowly absorbed by the Valiard. I think Millennial Rights by Craig Hinton um, and in the New Adventures, uh, Steve Lyons' Head Games. So... Uh, so he he did make his way back in the end, but the alternative universe cycle, you're right in that I think that was heading into the golden age of the new adventures throughout sort of the the second half of ninety three, and uh, ninety four, we got one book a month, and I, and that really does represent I think the zenith of the range. Um, yeah. You had you had some of the best books. You also had Saint Anthony's Fire by Mark Gatiss. Um, but on the whole, it was it was absolutely brilliant stuff. <laughs> I've not, I haven't read St. Anthony's Fire. Right. I mean, it's got it's got the sort of title that I think I should enjoy, but I suspect it's set on an alien planet, 
It is set on an alien planet. Okay. It contains perhaps the best twist in the whole of the New Adventures range. And it okay. would work really well as a 45-minute... Well, actually, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work visually. That's the problem with it. The twist works because, because it's not a visual medium. Um, but the intervening 200 pages of prose about this interminable war between the, the tiresomes and the dullards is, is a, a real low point. And this is publishing, I think, two or three months after Strange England, which was another right. book that at the time I absolutely didn't get on with at all. I mean, Strange England now, I think, would make one of the best episodes of any any series of Doctor Who. If you condense Strange England to a 45-minute idea, I think it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, we also had things like All Consuming Fire that that I liked at the time. Yes, um, yes. Be- because that was the Sherlock Holmes pastiche. Although, again, um, you're, you're right in that it was brilliant up until they went to an alien planet yeah, and then the wheels yeah. fell off. Yeah, if they'd have just done a Sherlock Holmes pastiche, maybe with, a, you know, an appropriate alien on Earth with a personality, that would have been good. But yes, it, it, the wheels came off. Um, Legacy was there. Legacy was Gary Russell's first sort of Peladon story. Yeah, what was that about? <laughs> I thought, I, I remember kind of liking it. I remember, I think... I think because it, it was unusual, they did they did move. So the what was all that about reaction, I kind of that's what sort of attracted me <laughs> to to new adventures. So so it sort of hopped around a bit. Yeah, they I don't mind them failing so long as they're not the pit, which fails <laughs> which fails because it's unreadably boring. But so long as they're if they're unusual or they do something different and they fail. So birthright earlier is an earlier story again a great cover it's my favorite cover from all of the new adventures a dr light story um and it and it's yeah it just such good such good atmosphere to it and it's short so it certainly is um there's also i suppose theater of war in that era which is which introduces this character irving braxiatel of whom much more much later but uh, that was a good one, which I I want to say was set on a number of alien worlds and yet still somehow managed to be quite good and quite readable. Yeah. Yeah, so setting it on an alien planet isn't necessarily a recipe for, for failure. You just have to inject character into that planet or some sort of humour or personality. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's it is the it's the thing that Russell T Davis said he was desperate to avoid was the doctor going to going to a, a planet and just being faced by two alien races that are at war. Yeah. I mean the doctor's daughter basically. Yes. Is what he was trying yes. to avoid and then And if only he had if yeah. only if he only had he avoided had. it yeah. by by you know a factor of one. Um yeah. I suppose and and this one comes slightly after the period we're in now, but I think it was towards the tail end of '95. Benaronovich wrote the Also People, which for me is the best bit of world creation, largely because it's essentially Ian M. Banks's culture novels, but mm-hmm. sort of you know deep debadged and polished and 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 set loose to do its own thing. And I read that in one sitting, which. I can only think of two new adventures I read in one sitting, and the also people wow. was one of them. 
I mean, we we skipped over transit um a while back, and transit was the one that got so was so controversial at the time, and rereading it, it is a tame, a tame kind of science fiction novel, but Ben Aronovich can write. Yeah, yeah. That's that's. I mean, he is he is he was clearly destined, eventually, when he stopped accidentally wiping his hard drive, and getting right when he got over writer's block, he was destined to write good, good, solid novels that that people would read. And I think he knew how to write a Doctor Who story. And Transit, I think, was a really good idea, mm. really well told, and it had you know it had jeopardy. At its centre, it had a really sense, real sense of jeopardy. I haven't read the also people, oh. but but I should now. Well, yes, you should. It's it's really good. But I mean, I think you know Aronovich because obviously he's gone on to have a successful career as a as a writer. You mm. kind of know that his books are going to be of of some merit or other, whereas most of the other writers, I guess, haven't really gone on to do anything else. Which makes think, uh, yeah. me kind of wary. Three or four of them have obviously gone on to write for the TV show, and um, that Russell T Davis bloke did quite well. Um, yeah, but I um, mean, there are a few. So Andy Andy Lane has gone on to write Sherlock Holmes right, stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously Andrew Cartmel has his his run of jazz detectives, which I haven't read. Oh, yet, no, I have, and they're they're really good. Okay. Um, it he, doesn't appeal to me yet, but if they're really good, it might be the sort of thing that I get yeah, into. Despite I mean, the, the, whole, the whole vinyl thing is kind of by the by. I, I, okay. I, I say that now. I've got a record behind me, but I've only got into it in the last year or so. But, <laughs> hipster, um, hipster. He, yeah, hipster <laughs> Klingon. Um, he just he just tells the story so well, and it was evident reading uh, Warlock, which I guess is my favourite new adventure. Um, it was just a really good thriller that you could genuinely give to people who didn't like Doctor Who because it was a well-written, page-turny thriller. Um, okay. And he's always had that talent. It just took a while to come to the fore and then he spent you know, 25 years not doing anything until he started writing Vinyl Detective. But people, I guess, like Neil Penswick, who wrote The Pit... Um, <laughs> Daniel O'Mahony, I've never encountered him since, and he wrote he, one of the stronger books, I think. He's online, I think. Is he? What now? Oh, I, hello. I think so. Or is that Daniel Blythe? No, there, there are there are people that have sort of. I'm I'm sure they've had really successful, maybe academic careers or maybe creative writing careers. So, you know, it's. I, I don't think you could say that the new adventures were a path to, to uh, literary stardom. No. I think I... They, they the ones that have written something were clearly destined to write something anyway. And they they write it. And Paul, Paul Cornell um, has written both. So he, he has novels, as far as I can remember. He's uh, the... Very similar to the Ben Aronovich. Yeah, ones, it's, it's, it's London Falling. I think I read it, okay. but I can't remember anything about it. It's just another no. one of these police book with magic. Ugh. Yeah, but but his his move into graphic novels has been more successful, I think. Um, so so yeah, it's produced. But there are some sad absentees. I think Lawrence Miles um, 
Lawrence Miles was a is a controversial figure in fandom and has very strong opinions, uh, which means he's got about thirty followers on, on Twitter. How is having strong opinions about Doctor Who can you know uh, unusual in fandom? Surely everyone does. Yeah, but he. I think he had strong opinions before Twitter even happened. He oh. he did. There was oh. a famous interview with him in uh, Dreamwatch Bulletin, I think, or maybe even the Doctor Who magazine, where he's very, very sort of forthright about the direction Doctor Who should go in. And he basically, he basically tweet storms before Twitter in this, in this interview. But his right. books are very inventive. I've always found his books really inventive and subversive and witty. Um, so I, I've always wanted to, to see more of his work. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I mean, so there was that two-part uh, Eighth Doctor series. Mm. The oh, and I can't remember their names now, but it's yeah. essentially the same premise as Blood Heat that we were talking about five minutes ago. Yeah, uh, the same thing happens, and he manages to get two books out of it. But also, he wrote one of the final New Adventures with Benny. Um, Christmas on a rational planet? No, 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 no. Dead romance from I want to say romance. I want to say nineteen ninety. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, long right. after the doctor's gone, and that was a belter as well. And yeah, he, and also uh, I want to say he wrote down, which would have been one of the earlier Doctor Free new adventures. We're we're getting very niche now. Um, yeah, yeah. But, the, this podcast has gone off the rails. Quick, <laughs> emergency, emergency. <laughs> Bring back the structure. Bring back Ace for another ten books. <laughs> um, yeah, he was he was a writer that I really wanted to spend more time with, but I think in the kind of periphery, he went off to do something with Faction Paradox, and then that mm -hmm. became yeah. increasingly niche, and he's kind of drifted away from from the mainstream. But with all of the writers in the series, you're right in that they shouldn't endeavour to always be writing for Doctor Who. And it's not necessarily the high watermark of any of their careers, um, but it's a very good stepping off point to to go on to do other things, which I guess most of them have, um, in some form or other. Kate Orman, I don't know about. I mean, she was the only woman to write a new adventure. She wrote three or four or five. Um, yeah. I'm, I've yet to see her name on anything else, but that purely might just be because I'm not looking. She's staggeringly intelligent. That's, I mean, that that's comes thing. that comes through from reading her books. That's why, and I don't know she is she is on social media, uh, but I don't know what she's doing. But I suspect she's an academic. If if anything, I think that right. was the path. Right, that would have been the path that she would have taken. But like similarly with Lance Parkin, um, who who is staggeringly intelligent and a really good. I mean, Lance Parkin wrote some really strong. Um, Doctor Who, Doctor Who novels, um, and he he didn't branch out. He branched out into writing about Doctor Who, <laughs> sort of non-fiction, right? Um, which I love, I really appreciate. Or I, uh, but but he doesn't seem to have moved into kind of non-Doctor Who, Doctor Who fiction, as far as I can tell. He wrote the biog a biography of Alan Moore. Well, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so he, I, when I think of him, I think of Just War, and that was mm -hmm. one of the uh, really arresting books. Where again, you're thinking, 
you could literally let anyone read this and, and they wouldn't judge you badly for it being a Doctor Who book. It's a really well-written yeah. period uh, World War Two novel. Um, and as a, as a first novel... I mean, my God. From a imagine, debut novelist. Yeah, imagine doing yeah. something that that assured and that, you know, self-contained because an awful lot of debut novels that I read are just so flappy and flailing and you can see the original idea but you can see where the editors have led them astray from that idea um but yeah parkin uh, was an incredible debut now i suppose if we're going through the kind of sweeps and and mini collections within the series yeah that, we, that's it get us back on track go on we could <laughs> we could touch ever so briefly on that side power story arc okay. which began very delicately in i want to say Sleepy and War Child, which was the third and final part of Andrew Cartmel's trilogy. Then it went away for the summer and came back with the two, I think, most challenging books in the series, which would be The Death of Art and uh, Christmas on a Rational Planet. Not so much Christmas, but certainly The Death of Art. Um, I think of it now and I can remember you've got some aliens called the Watchmakers fighting... The Chirurgeon. Um, I don't know what the hell you're, is going you're on. Completely, you're completely on your own with yeah. this. So as I'm looking at this list, <laughs> as I'm looking at this list, I think I started tailing off. I must have started stopped. I must have started to stop buying. I must have stopped buying uh, New Adventures around sort of Zampa. Okay. Maybe, maybe that period. I do own some of these. I've got God Engine up there. As we, as we speak, mm. but I think I started buying them without reading them because right. I've got no memory of of, and it's a pain because of all the ranges. I think I w- I'm not a big uh, Target book collector. In fact, I'm about to donate donate a lump of Target books to my friend Simon, who is a collector. Um, but I wouldn't gather Target books together. I probably wouldn't go. I gave away a lot of Eight Doctor Adventures. So did I, be- yeah. because I just I just didn't see myself reading. Of all the ranges, I would possibly collect the new adventures. The new adventures sound feel like they've now got a nostalgia for me. Mm. They're, they're long enough ago for them to be a formative part of my childhood or my teenagerhood, and I can see their position now in retrospect that I would be tempted to collect them. But the sigh the sigh thing, arc, go. Speak. I mean, I, you know, and again with the with the proviso that I haven't read these books for thirty odd years, and uh, at the time it it felt like one of the more tenuous of the little arcs within the books, um, and it was it was building up to, I guess, the death of one of the companions, Ros Forrester. Um, so it was it was kind of a, a, an important time in the books, um, but I'm buggered if I can remember so is, what was going on in any of them. So the de- the death of Roz, as far as I can remember, was bungled slightly. Yes, by Ben Ronovich's hard hard yes, drive melting hard down, hard drive and, meltdown, and his key core book, So Violet Sin, which was to form like this this major kind of like. This keystone, point, this keystone, this keystone of the, of was the range. then delayed for like a year. Six, yeah, a year. and thus, and I'll tell you uh, what's weird is that I met Benaronovich about ten years ago, and we went out for a coffee, 
And at no point did it occur to me to ask him about so vile a sin or what had happened with that or indeed I think any of the new adventures I think we talked about the TV show and we talked about his new project he was working on which went on to become Rivers of London but um, I could kick myself for not asking I, I, I've i read things where that whole hard drive meltdown might not have actually been a thing and he just didn't write it and it's sort of a dog ate my homework yeah yeah kind of thing. and that's fair enough I mean but this was the 1990s, so I could I could imagine this is before cloud storage. I could imagine a hard drive packing up because well, Emma Thompson Emma Thompson nearly lost script to Sense and Sensibility. That was the that was the an- anecdote she told once, and she she physically took her computer to Stephen Fry's house, <laughs> who managed to to do a limited amount of sort of technical salvage. I could just imagine him leaning back. over again. Well, have you turned it on and turned it off again? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the joke on the chat show was that he couldn't do it and he just wrote the script from, from scratch <laughs> in an hour. He just bashed it out. <laughs> Overnight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like in Blackadder where they've got... So I can, I can sort of... I can sort of believe that that could happen. It's entirely possible. I mean, I can remember I was at, I was at uni at the time, and I'm I'm fairly certain I lost bits of coursework because my my computers, which were all secondhand ones that my dad had nicked from his office every time they got an upgrade in their IT, um, possibly shouldn't have just said actually, that. Um, actually, look, looking at the date it was published, I was at uni, and I can remember losing an essay for right, exactly that, right. that reason and having so, to handwrite it out yeah, from memory. So it's quite safe yeah. to assume that Ben Aronovich entirely could have lost the book in yeah. a hard drive crash, but... Um, it well, finally I arrived. Used, I bet he used floppy disks after that. I one, bet though. he did. I bet he did. So that last kind of, uh, I guess, six to nine months of, of the new adventures, while the Doctor was still part of the new adventures at least, uh, was kind of very much under the shadow of the Paul McGann TV movie, which had already been broadcast in, I think, May of 96. So yeah. most of the writers knew that the seventh doctor was going to regenerate that regeneration wouldn't happen in the books but they could foreshadow it very heavily mm. and jesus f christ they did um they had a, a run of about six books where it's all about the eighth man bound and the doctors chatting with death and you know all oh it'll be my time soon i'm sure i'm going to die yes which, you are which it- which again is just somebody knocking four times it, for, it, for four yeah, four episodes. Yeah, it really is. Year. But yeah, there were six months of this, and you had um, so Benny was written out in Happy Endings, and she came back for for a one off novel to kind of test whether she had the kind of presence on the page to carry the range on after the Doctor left. Uh, by this time, the Doctor is just travelling with Chris Quedge or Shvey or however the hell people choose to say. It. That's, however, that's the- a, very, a very annoying. I mean, it's almost worth buying the big fin- the big Finnish adaptation yeah, yeah, yeah. just to find out how to pronounce names. Well, the problem is, I'm sure every actor identifies differently, so um, he he could be called anything. <laughs> I like the fact they just probably bleep it out, just to, or just put some like <laughs> over noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, like a just comedy, past, comedy so value. Nobody will ever know. Absolutely. Um, uh, and Perry comes back in one of the books, so you're wrong in that nothing from season twenty three was revisited. <laughs> they brought back Perry. She was like a sort of middle aged warrior queen. It was 
misjudged i would say um <laughs> and you know the range kind of wrapped up with a couple of lukewarm books that were basically sylvester mccauley treading water waiting to die um and then we got the dying days and we got the long awaited uh book we were talking about 30 seconds long ago barrow. no um oh yes actually so long long barrow, long barrow and then the dying days and the ben Aronovich yeah. book that was oh delayed. yes so by the sin thank you yeah. so by the sin so we had three kind of real belters to finish mm. the range with um you've said already that you really like long barrow I, I appreciate it. I don't think it's a page turner. Um, but so, um, oh, uh, the Titus Grown author, uh, Mervyn Peak. Mervyn Peak. Mervyn Peak. Yeah. It's obviously based, I mean, we know it's based on him. We know that it's what Mark Platt wanted to write instead of Ghostlight. We know he was obsessed with Mervyn Peak. That's just written all over it. But I found Mervyn Peake exactly the same. I can read a couple of pages and then I have to go away for a bit <laughs> to kind of digest it. It's so rich yeah, yeah. and so kind of filled with sort of texture that it becomes slightly indigestible. And I think Lung Barrow is in a similar way. It's it's not as it's not as kind of unruly as Times Crucible. I think it is more of a disciplined novel. Um it's it clearly has a point to it it does excite the fan in me um much as i try to kick him out and <laughs> tell him off um it does excite the fan in me i think it does go places that i'm interested in and i would like to see in doctor who that kind of that kind of sort of psychodrama but but in this kind of twisted twisted sort of satirical kind of weird setting i mean after growing up in the 80s and watching gallifrey in the 80s slowly turn into a kind of an ikea workshop of, of dullness painted in, yeah painted in beige really dull with uplighters and men sitting around tables sort of talking about policy <laughs> to, like to a very see... very nascent version of the west wing yeah yeah <laughs> the west wing but you know but shit with with no drama or personality <laughs> to ha- to have lung barrow which actually which actually injects a bit more sort of bit more fairy tale into the time lord society i think that's that's a real achievement and i kind of think it's a shame it wasn't more influential or that sort of that was never really returned to i mean again stephen moffat kind of touches on it in his in his occasional Gallifrey stories. Yeah, I mean um, we've we've got the Doctor as a child, which is not quite showing us the Doctor's ancestral home, but again, yeah. it's a a peek into the early Doctor. We've never yeah. fortunately had to endure a kind of greatest hits episode with three canines, two Romanas, nine Leelas, and they're yeah. all running around the capital. But yeah. um, I think there was enough in the book. Or there was nothing in the original idea when it when he pitched it as a TV show that would have made for a brilliant Ghostlight esque kind of story. So he, mm. I think he he layered on top of that a lot of the fan wank that has been a, a barrier to. Um, in, in many ways, it's it's like we've come full circle and we're back to John Peel. The range is kind of ending with this continuity heavy car yeah. carnival of K nines. Yeah, but but John Peel puts sort of 
rivers of coloured icing on, say, a pizza. Whereas Mark Platt puts rivers of coloured icing on a cake. So you're already eating a cake. So yeah. the rivers of coloured icing is sort of, it's yeah. slightly indigestible. You're going to get ill the next day, but it doesn't clash. Yeah. So I, I think it does. It doesn't stand out like John Peel's kind of drawing in of different threads from the old series. It feels more, it's slightly more acceptable to me. I think you're probably right. We also, as I said, had The Dying Days, which was the one and only appearance of the Eighth Doctor, um, at the end of which the Doctor, and there are hugely complex contractual reasons for this, but Virgin lost the licence to do the original Doctor Who books because the BBC had just taken them back. So the new adventures carried on for another three years with Benny Summerfield as the lead character, and there was a kind of passing of the torch moment at the end of the dying days. And we also finally got Ben Aronovich's So Vile Sin, which, you know, it's like it's like watching uh, the final episode of Murder One in isolation. It's like, oh, that's OK. Is that important? Someone someone died. OK, whatever. Um, had it appeared at the time, it would have been, I think, a very different book and a very special book. But. We've kind of got to the end of the new adventures. There's one book we haven't talked about very much, which is easily the most famous new adventure. And as you said, it's the one that has been televised. And oh, it's the one I've reread. The one you've reread. So yeah. let's let's look at human nature briefly. I mean, it's a great. It is a great book, and actually rereading it made me realise how I hadn't really read it before. I'd sort of skim read it before, and I think. Rereading it makes me realise how the new series has prepared me for reading the new adventures. So there's a sort of a, there's a kind of a retrospective sort of, and it's not just that I've aged by 30 years. <laughs> I think I was old enough at 15 or 14 to read these things, but because it was so unlike the series, even Human Nature, which is a great novel, just sort of jars you just want the doctor you just want tom baker somewhere or you want you want the doctor in there um but rereading it you can just see you can see how well it's structured you can see what a great idea the the idea of um the doctor wanting to be human as a kind of a break from his own horrible personal <laughs> personality and the wit, the the sort of the kind of the comedy that this creates, with uh, Benny trying to look after him, and the the drama, which is actually quite low key in the book, of of these sort of aliens trying to get his his uh, time lord life force, his mojo, if um, you will. Yeah, I mean, it's, in a way, it's a really simple, slight novel. It's not perfect. When I was rereading it, there was a a brutal example of the aliens explaining the plot to Bernice in right. a very, not even in a kind of an ironic sort of lampshaded way. They just explain the plot and that sort of stands out. There's also um, with uh, Paul Cornell, I don't, I don't want to use the word pretentious. I think he's a lyrical writer, but he, he sort of sometimes writes like, a 17-year-old teenager. Um, 
which at the time he's a young novelist. Um, so I kind of accept that. But you can tell that this is a, a still a sort of a fresh novelist or somebody who hasn't yeah. written a lot of books and hasn't got a lot of sort of self-discipline in his descriptions or in, in the kind of the purple language that he uses. Um, but yeah, it's the, it's the idea that's the, that's the cracking bit. And it also makes you, or makes because I love the TV version as well. I thought that was a really strong two-parter. But it, it makes you realise what they cut out for it and how thin the TV version is. Appropriately thin, because it has to be thinner for the television, for, mm. for it to work on television. Um, but almost as a companion piece, the two alongside one another, the novel and the TV series, you kind of get you kind of get everything you, you kind of want from Doctor Who. I mean, it, it forms a complete picture. Um, and oddly, I'm re-watching Buffy at the moment. Oh. Um, which is a really awkward time to re-watch Buffy because I kind of basically started to re-watch Buffy just as Joss Whedon's oh, of course. Yeah. stories came out. And I'm, I'm, uh, briefly, I was thinking, should I not watch anything Joss Whedon wrote again? And I thought, oh, I might rewatch Buffy just completely separately. But with Buffy, <laughs> but watching, but rewatching Buffy and rereading um, Human Nature, that's almost where it, where New Doctor Who comes from. You can see that New Doctor Who is it, it, it processes stories through the lens of the New Adventures and Buffy. Those yeah. are the two, yeah. the two. And I might be overstating it with Buffy, but there's there's so obviously no, I, like things from Buffy that feed in. I mean, there's literally plot points and imagery uh, that comes into the museum. I think more importantly, the dialogue there, and this was exemplified, mm. I think, best under Stephen Moffat. But the dialogue between Clara and the Doctor was this kind of every line is a joke, every every line yeah. is stylized mm. and nuanced, and I think that is is totally the legacy of Buffy. Um, yeah. So somewhere, but yeah, you're right. Between Buffy and the New Adventures, we we got New Who. Yeah, it's a recognition. It's a recognition that so long as you undercut the horror with humour or you know one-liners, which they overdo in Buffy, but as long as you do that, you can get away with the most brutal horror, the most sort of throat slitting, neck cracking, whatever is on the table, yeah. because you because you're sort of you're kind of softening it. And this is what the new adventures don't doesn't have is this kind of lightness of touch. There's very little humour in the new adventures. There's very little wit. And I don't know whether that's because I I always get the impression that humour is easy to write in a script for television as one liners or farce. In a book, I always assume that humour is harder to write. I've always got a much greater appreciation for comic novelists that can make me laugh. P.G. Woodhouse can actually make me laugh. Yeah. Douglas Adams at times can make yep. me laugh. But... Were you were you, were you of Pratchett? I mean, because Pratchett... Oh, Pratt Pratchett yeah. can make me laugh. So that's the thing. Yeah. When I think of comic authors, I can name three or four that are brilliant. I can name four or five that are quite good, but that's kind of it. And I think the reason yeah. maybe we didn't get... We got one attempt in the New Adventures, but... Um, uh, the, it, it is it's harder to do and it takes I think I don't want to say more talent because that sounds incredibly snobbish but I think it takes a much rarer talent and they don't tend to do TV spin-off fiction 
when they're that talented. So Dave Stone's Sky Pirates was quite funny, but it but there was about five hundred pages of it, and it wasn't edited at all well. So he just really went off on one, and it was like watching yeah. one of these eight-hour Ken Dodd shows, where by the end of it you have a hernia. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it was too much, and that was the problem. They were either po-faced and humorless, like the the books of Christopher Bueller's, or else it was Dave Stone's comedy laugh along, which was just just bizarre. And maybe maybe that's the explanation. Maybe that's why. I I always think I always used to think they're not they miss they don't have humor they they they're not light they're constantly every book is kind of like dark and this is the worst situation and but maybe that's better than trying to inject humor into it and maybe that's why Doctor Who probably works best on the TV because it is this balance of of humor and drama and horror I mean, that's what makes Doctor Who, that's why the new adventures never really felt like they got, they pinned Doctor Who down. They didn't, they didn't do contemporary, they didn't really do horror, I mean, maybe once or twice. It was very much a series of sci-fi books, generally set in 500 years time. Um, yeah. And yes, you're right, it, it, it just worked on one of the three pillars of Who, um, and and therefore perhaps that's why it's now a kind of cul-de-sac and for an official continuation it's really hard to head canon it in now because if you if you buy into the idea that the new adventures were what happened to the seventh doctor you've then got to reconcile the fact that he had the same adventure twice which yeah. a lot of people yeah. are reluctant to countenance oh. so oh but, but try try reconciling Sharda into the, oh, into the canon, which has happened four times at least. Um, but that cul-de-sac nature kind of makes it attractive to me now. This is the reason why I would be willing to collect the new adventures, because it feels it feels niche, but it's also, as I said, it's such a cauldron of sort of inspirational ideas and inventive writing and new writing and sort of practice grounds for quite some people who became novelists and and people who became figures in fandom. Um, So even though it didn't, I think, pin Doctor Who down, I I think what it did achieve was was really interesting and, and, you know, refreshing. And I think it did, it did. I don't think it held Doctor Who in the public imagination as we... I mean, it's traditional to think that the wilderness years, the new adventures and the Eighth Doctor adventures somehow carried the the torch. I don't think that's true. I think that made fans feel better. I think maybe the TV movie kind of smouldered the torch in the middle, but actually actually the time it was off wasn't that long in retrospect. Yeah. It was maybe a cultural generation or two, and then it comes back. Um, So it, it... it didn't keep Doctor Who alive, but it it did create a sort of a a sandpit environment for key key creative people to sort of work in and work around, um, and then yeah, because the new the new series the new series was kind of predicted by a 
Doctor Who magazine interview between, and I'm trying to get this right, um, certainly Russell T. Yep. Davis, I think Stephen Moffat, yep. Paul Cornell. Gatiss? Um, maybe Mark Gatiss, yeah. And possibly Lance Parkin, but there might be a, a fifth, the, the, the mysterious fifth man. The other. Um, the other. <laughs> um, and that interview was, what would you do if you brought Doctor Who back? Um, which wasn't, you know, we just do the new adventures and continue. But that group of people, there was a strong sort of new adventure DNA in that group of people. So it kept the flame alive for them, for yeah. these fans. Yeah. And that's that sort of propelled it. And that's and that's where we've got the last, 20, well, 15, 20 years of, of Doctor Who from. I think that's probably a very good place to finish talking because it's now a million o'clock and, and we're both... Um, probably flagging. Before we go, though, Matt, um, something Mark yeah. usually does on Nerdology. Is there anything you've been watching or reading lately of a nerdish bent that you would like to discuss with the readers? Oh, crikey! Well, I've been rewatching rewatching Buffy. Whereabouts are um, you in Buffy? So I'm season four, towards the end of season Ooh. four. Now, see, so, that's that's a good season because Spike, but obviously bad because the initiative. Yeah, but I don't mind the initiative. It's a good season because of Hush. Yeah. And so I'm also reading the BFI classics and Bilson's BFI classics on Buffy, um, where she goes through season by season. Really interesting, but she's so down. She thinks season four is the worst. I think season three and four have been really strong. But actually what surprised me was how consistent it was, even when it was doing the sort of monster of the week. Yeah. It's just so... They just nailed the casting and the the setting is likable and Giles is it's such a so good. such a enjoyable character. Yeah. Particularly when he gets you know, comedy to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's just yeah, it's just a joy. So I yeah, I'm I'm rewatching that. Um and I'm watching Jackie Chan films as well. Ooh. So my, my mate Will, who lives in Bristol, is a Jackie Chan fan and he's sort of He's been rewatching them and has been challenging me to rewatch them. So, um, so some early Jackie Chan films, the sorts of films where Jackie Chan is trained to fight in the style of the snake and the eagle and the hyena and the cat, or a drunken person, or he, in one memorable film, he's trained to trained to fight in a happy way, a sad way, <laughs> an angry way, a jealous way. <laughs> is there one where he's? His his choices are generic, Martin Sheen, and what's the? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of the justice bit from the day to day. There's oh anyway, um, but that, it probably is that it sounds that is. sounds like all kinds of fun. It is good fun. Mm. I would recommend people go back to you know uh, late seventies, late seventies Jackie Chan up to the point where he makes Rumble in the Bronx. There's this golden age Jackie Chan, and they are. They are, it's like, I mean, they're ridiculous and the comedy in them is a sort of a carry-on style kind of farcical comedy. But the action in them, his movement, is like Fred Astaire. I mean, it is Fred Astaire with stunts. It is unbelievable. He's an unbelievably kind of lithe, um, fit um, uh, and well-rehearsed, choreographed, uh, actor yeah so i mean it's just it's just unbelievable and then the outtakes afterwards where you discover all the all the times he fell over cracked his head 
against a tree, went through a real glass, a pane glass window, um, nearly killed himself, covered in blood. God. I mean, that's just, it's just unbe- really unbelievable. Yeah, you, you probably wouldn't get movie stars doing that now. No, no, you'd not, no, you wouldn't, sure. No, not like Tom Cruise no. actually flying a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> well, apart from Tom Cruise, you couldn't get movie stars doing that. That's true. That's true. I did see Tom Cruise once. Um, he was hanging off the Burj Khalifa and I was coming out the back of Dubai Mall after a meeting with Kino Kinnear, the bookshop. And I looked up and we knew that Mission Impossible, I think, 4 was filming in Dubai. But I looked up and there was a little tiny speck of a man on this very tall building and a helicopter that was, you know, with a cameraman leaning out the side of it that was yeah. flying, I want to say, about a metre away from the side of this building. And it was, yeah. oh, it was stunning. Um, so this is, the, this is the thing about Tom Cruise. Great stuntman, but the person filming him. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's your hero. That's the stuntman. That's the film I want to watch. <laughs> yeah. So two things um, I've been... Uh, it, going through recently because we talked about very briefly about Gormenghast by Mervyn Peake. I've been reading a novel called Mordew by Alex Phoebe which is published by Galley Beggar Press which is uh, fantastic if you like that kind of slightly icky fantasy world it's brilliant um, piece of writing and I've been watching the American TV adaptation of The Watch based on characters by Sir Terry Pratchett um, I read a great. Have you been? Have you been watching? This? I, I have, I have. Have you? Is this recent? Because haven't you? Weren't you asking I, on Twitter I, very recently I, I, if yes, it had been shown yet? I, I did, and someone replied, and thus I've been able okay. to watch it. Um, oh well, it's interesting in that I, I came across a, a review quote of it from Rihanna Pratchett, Terry's daughter, where she said that it it shared not one iota of the DNA of her father's conception of the watch which I think is interesting given that Rihanna Pratchett was very heavily involved in the creation of this TV <laughs> series. So I'm finding that interesting. Um, I'm enjoying it very much in the same way okay. that there are good things to be said about the Hitchhiker's movie. It's n- okay. it's not the books. It's not what you fell in love with. It's The settings are different. The characters are different. But there is enough in there to love. And if, like me, you read the below-the-line comments and there's so much kind of hatred about why have they cast women in this why have they cast people of color in this how dare they cast trannies in it whatever um it kind of stiffens your resolve and you think i will watch all of this and i will love it because i'm not i've had exactly exactly the same the more people complain about it yeah the more i'm i'm sort of perversely wanting to like actually i quite like the idea of a punky kind of twist on because i like the watch the watch books i think are the best disc i think books. you're right but i'm not so much of a fan that that if they do something different or add a twist to it or you know even just take it down a completely different road that it would cause me headaches yeah. so i'm kind of open to i think there is enough in there and and obviously the first episode is always going to be difficult but if you like me if you plow through it in a couple of evenings um there is genuinely, I think, a lot to take from it. And I I guess by now it's probably already been cancelled. But if there was a second series, <laughs> I'd be up for that. I'd be very much okay. home to that. Anyway. Does it have Does it have this is going to be cancelled written all over um, 
I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. So yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's your smoking gun officer, <laughs> yeah. Matt. Thank you so much for taking five hours out of your evening to chat about the new adventures with me. That's my pleasure. I mean, without Mark here, it's never going to be controlled, is it? That's it's always true. going to overrun. It's been a bit of a ramble, and I do apologise. Yeah. But um, that's fun. If if we end up letting Mark edit it, and he might need to edit that sentence, uh, it may come out <laughs> quite a lot shorter than it is at the moment. But there you go. Anyway, <laughs> he'll just cut out all this new adventure stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that was that was his feeling from the word go. He's like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> anyway, so you can listen to Matt on the Strangers in Space podcast, which, uh, as always, I wholeheartedly and fulsomely recommend and you can listen to myself and uh, the wonderful Mr Cochrane on all of time and space and Nerdology will be back at some point soon until then be well if you want to get in touch you can email us at nerdologyuk at gmail.com or you can tweet us at nerdologyuk we're also on Facebook, just type in Nerdology UK Podcast. And also now you can leave your audio feedback. So there's a link in the show notes, you can click on that. Or uh, if you're on the Anchor website listening to the show, there is a little button that says message and you just click on that and you can use your mobile phone or your computer and you can leave an audio message. Mm-hmm.